another pot of coffee is brewing my third cup is almost finished so that means it's time for not before coffee i'm your host ray self-confessed bookworm film addict hermit long-term depression sufferer and caffeine fiend well that's a list In this week's episode, I'm going to try something a little bit different and do a countdown of sorts. And because this script, when I started writing it, started to look as though I've lost the plot and you could possibly be sitting here until next month listening to it, I'm going to give you the usual exciting rundown of yet another week in the life of Ray, but there will be no book review. But first... It's time for yet another instalment of My Dreams Are Fucking Weird. I thought that this would be a one-time thing when I recorded the first episode and then the second dream with barbed wire happened and it was like, oh, maybe it's going to be a two-time thing. However, my dreams are just the gift that keeps on giving. So (laughs) I would much rather that my bank account was doing that, but we can't have everything. Uh... Anyway, this week I have been going through some stuff that I will get on to when I go through my week of Ray at the end of the episode. Um, It's a situation that has been of my making and other people's, but we don't need to get into the dirty details. That sounds really wrong. The finer details of the actual situation because it's a very personal for the other person more than it is for me. Anyway, it's led to a lot of sleepless nights for me, even though I've been going to bed relatively early, um, shutting everything off, trying to shut my brain down. As anybody who has anxiety will know, if you go to bed with too many thoughts in your head, you are going to be staring at the ceiling for the next six hours And then your alarm is going to go off and you're going to have to start your day. I've been trying really hard to avoid this. And I will go into reasons why it's been incredibly difficult over the last week. But not now. Because now is the time for my weird dream. And it really was weird. Uh, It started with me as the narrator. I wasn't even in the dream to begin with. I was observing as a narrator who could see everything but clearly didn't have the omniscience that many people actually have when they're writing or observing something from on high. Anyhow, (laughs) this is so weird. Oh my god, I'm going to sound insane. Uh, Five, I'm... As I'm, as I said, I'm the narrator, so I'm just observing, and I see five girls arrive at their holiday destination. It's really sunny. There is a beach, and that's pretty much. Oh, and a load of shopping malls. But again, random. It's a dream. I have no idea where we're meant to be, or anything. I don't even hear the girls talk. I hear sort of mumbles and everything else, but no clear words. 
So these girls arrive at the holiday destination, rent a really large bright red SUV. I'm going to say it's a G-Wagon just because I associate that with large unwieldy vehicles. And these two men are watching them. They're sitting in their own black SUV with sunlight glaring down on it. So it must be really hot in there, but it's a dream. It doesn't matter. Um, And these two men are watching them and they start having a conversation in which they are discussing it. I have zero idea what it is, but apparently one of the girls has brought it with them they don't know which girl she has no idea she has it and they need to get it from her as i said it could be anything it could be a usb key it could be a diamond it could be the recipe for a barbecue sauce I have no idea and to be fair it probably has no bearing on the dream or the story or anything else. Definitely has no bearing on the dream because I don't think I ever found out what it was. In fact I know I didn't find out what it was. Anyway it can be anything in your imagination just go with it. It can be as random as anything. As I said let's stick with it's a barbecue sauce recipe. Anyway they are desperate to get whatever it is from the girl the barbecue recipe and they when they pull when the girls pull away from the car rental place these guys follow them the girls are driving on down the seafront having a good time listening to music I'm assuming because I have no idea I can't see into the car I just see the cars and then all of a sudden the car veers quickly and turns down another road so my assumption in my head is that they've realised they're being followed. This is some weird chase scene. The guys realise that they, um, they're about to lose the girls in their car. And they start, they pull out, one of them pulls a gun from, I have no idea where, and starts firing on them. Now, this is where I become a character in my own dream. I kind of wish I hadn't because what happens next is not the sort of thing anybody wants to really dream about but I I'm no longer the observant narrator I am now somebody in the dream and I'm watching these guys as they chase this other car they see me they realize that I can identify them which is clever because I barely remember what they look like and I was I oh I don't know and they one of them says something along the lines of well we can't leave any witnesses not thinking about all the other people that may well have seen them heard the gunshots and everything else and he shoots me in the in the shin and the shoulder yeah the shin and the shoulder so I immediately fall down which I think anybody would if they were shot in the leg and I play dead especially when I hear one of them start to walk over and say we need to make sure that she doesn't live so I'm lying there pretending to be dead and I woke up the next morning this is me now not in the dream I woke up the next morning and I can remember so clearly the feeling 
that feeling of helplessness and at some point I must have shifted quite sharply and pushed myself down into my mattress because I actually did something to my shoulder which means that I mean I have shoulder problems anyway comes with age um but my shoulder is really quite sore so I'm assuming that I slept funny but anyway let's get back to the weirdness so once these two men have poked and prodded at me made sure that I'm not moving even though I'm still alive um they get in their car and drive off to a nearby car park don't ask and these other people who've been observing everything come over and say you need to hide until they're gone so I start to look for a hedge to hide behind why I didn't leave at this point I have no idea I picked I decided right there's a fence of hedges over there I'm gonna hide behind one of them so I start looking for somewhere to hide behind and discover that every single one of these hedges is actually fake they are pieces of flexible board with fake plastic hedge stuck to them seriously I have no idea fake plastic okay fake plastic hedge aside I find somewhere to hide and then all of a sudden from nowhere my mum appears in the dream she's walking up and down in front of this little piece of hedge having a conversation with me about random Buffy episodes um we get into a minor disagreement about which one's the best and she carries on talking and then one of the guys one of the men who was chasing these women suddenly appears sitting cross-legged in front of the bush that I'm hiding behind and start gets a notepad out and starts making notes about something all the while my mum's still there talking about Buffy he says um what are you doing who are you talking to and my mum starts muttering under her breath starts to walk away and says oh I'm talking to myself however for some reason there is a tiny little bit of material he looks down there's a tiny little bit of material cream with flowers on it oh my god some of these details that I have in my dreams are incredible and then I can't remember what any of the people look like but there's a tiny little piece of material showing underneath the fake hedge and I make the mistake of pulling it back under when I realise he can see it because I can see him. Don't I don't know how because it's a board but anyway I start to pull it back and it's a big mistake obviously and then I wake up. So as I said, another weird dream. If anybody has any experience in dream interpretation, I would love to know what these things actually mean. Right, I wasn't sure what to put here originally. I thought maybe I would do a review of one of my favourite TV shows or perhaps talk about a film I'd just seen, as I've done previously. Then I remembered that the most recent film I'd watched was actually Dadnapped 
on Disney Plus. So I thought you're probably not going to be interested in that. And to be honest, it was an average film that was purely, I purely watched it because I couldn't sleep. So I then had the fantastic idea of doing a countdown. I know, I said as I sat down to plan out this episode. And if you've ever seen somebody who takes very, very detailed notes, you'll know where I'm coming from. I have, no joke, got 13 pages of notes today. um, And I'm slowly reading through them. I thought, I'll look at the 10 highest rated films on IMDb and talk about the ones I've seen. I checked out the top 10 highest rated films and realised to my absolute mortification and serious embarrassment that I have seen only half of them and could probably talk about two at most. I'm not sure, but I may be one of the only Gen Xers or one of the only people that hasn't seen Schindler's List. I can't bring myself to watch it and I don't know why. It's, I'm, it's, I love black and white films and I think that Steven Spielberg has done, has produced and directed and written some amazing films. But for some reason, Schindler's List has never appealed to me. And so I thought, no, that's not going to be good. Two films that I can remember and both of them are Lord of the Rings. One of them I think is in sixth, position and the other is in 10th so that would make something really interesting and there are plenty of amazing podcasts out there that have done it fantastically then I thought okay what about Netflix top rated films on Netflix only to see that I'd actually seen even less of those Um, I'm not a huge fan of the gangster genre so the idea of spending three plus hours watching The Irishman is about as far from my idea of I'm going to watch this for fun as watching a film starring Tom Cruise. And then this is this is the perfect sign of how my brain actually works. Just as I was about to fall asleep a couple of nights ago, the perfect theme came to me. And as with any list that isn't about a top 10 that has been decided by a massive number of people who are ranking over a certain over over a very long period of time like the imdb list and the netflix list um this is my opinion just because someone says this is the top 10 or lots of people have watched it so it's a high has a high view rating it doesn't mean that everyone liked it so i started thinking a bit more carefully and I realized that my countdown had to be something that I really am passionate about or I well I'm passionate about and I really enjoy so as I as I knew I wasn't going to be talking about dad napped today so apologies if anyone has seen the film and thinks oh that would be a really good thing to talk about Um, I am actually going to rank my personal top five TV programs with a teenage lead. Okay, so I started thinking about this really, really carefully. And I actually began by looking at 
current TV shows and then realized I don't actually watch very much that's on. The CW that was once home to um, TV programs like Gilmore Girls, Gossip Girl, Veronica Mars, Smallville, and going back further, Angel, Buffy, Roswell, oh my god, the list is really long, is now really focused on the Arrowverse. And I'm sorry, I'm not going to call it the CW-verse, it just doesn't sound right. It's been the Arrowverse since day one. Just because Arrow's no longer running doesn't mean it's not a relevant title any longer. It was the beginning. And most of the characters in those programs are actually adults already. They've got established careers. They have some idea of who they are, barring, of course, Stargirl, which actually airs initially on DC and then airs on CW afterwards. Anyway, so that eliminated programs from today. I then started to think, well, if I'm going to do a top 10 or a top five even, I'm going to need to specify some criteria that these programs are going to have to meet. Otherwise, I am going to be writing a list forever. It is going to last about 10,000 episodes and I'm never going to reach number one. So, and I'm going to say so a lot, (laughs) sorry. I'm going to be choosing from... TV shows that fit these three criteria and before you start telling me I'm wrong in my countdown you're perfectly entitled to do so this is my personal view you don't have to share it and as I it is my view and it's not influenced by anything more than what I like and wow that was really well spoken anyway I'm going to be choosing from TV shows that started between 1990 and 2010. That's a nice generous span of time, 20 years. They don't have to have finished by 2010, but they do need to have started. Second criteria, each show has to have run for more than one season. This immediately eliminates programs like The Secret Circle and Freaks and Geeks, which only ran for one year however good Freaks and Geeks is, and it it was a very, very good program. But it eliminates this one because it only ran for one season. This doesn't mean they have to have the sort of run that you associate with NCIS, which I think is entering its 16th season this coming year, and Law and Order, which has been running for over 20 years. It doesn't have to have been running that long. It just means to it has to have run for more than two years. And the final one is the most important given <laughs> my title is top teenage program top programs with a teenage lead one lead or more has to have been a teenager for at least part of the series run so that means they could have started the season started the series run at 16 18 or whatever and obviously aged out and there's loads of programs, especially in that particular time span, that did exactly that. I think I spent enough time explaining it. That's Teenage Lead, more than one season, started between 1990 and 2010. Okay, so what shows are in my top five and why? In 
fifth place is the original Beverly Hills 90210. And some of you listening, bearing in mind it started 30 years ago, may have never seen the original Beverly Hills 90210, which starred Shannon Doherty, Jenny Garth, Jason Priestley, Luke Perry, RIP, and Tori Spelling to name but a few there were a lot more people in it and there were quite a few well-known guest stars as well the show ran originally well originally it ran that was it from 1990 until 2000 though only four of the original 11 main characters stayed for the full 10-year run and now I'm going to be 100% honest and as I all the way through I'm going to be honest I sort of stopped watching regularly after season five I did dip my toe in and out of the program when there was nothing else on however I grew out of it I grew out of the shenanigans and it became quite soap like for me bearing in mind it actually was the uh, original parent show of programs like Models Inc and Melrose Place it is understandable that it became quite soap like Anyhow, I have added Beverly Hills 90210 on the merit of its first five seasons. The positives. I can still remember watching the first episode when it aired. In fact, I can remember watching the promos when they were starting the whole, oh, coming in, I think it was started about November in the UK, coming in November on Saturday evenings, the latest drama from Aaron Spelling. And it was, they made it look really interesting. It was one of the first TV programs that actually was made with a teenage audience in mind that aired in the UK. Unless you count the TV shows, the the TV programs over in the UK, like Grange Hill. It was specifically targeting a teenage audience. The main characters were all 16 years old and going through the stuff that they you associate with teenage experience. In the first year anyway, it was mostly about the twins, Brenda and Brandon Walsh, played by Shannon Doherty and Jason Priestley, moving from Minneapolis and acclimatizing to the vastly different way that things were in the exclusive Beverly Hills 90210 post uh, zip code sorry and through the school they met the children of incredibly wealthy people who lived the kind of lives they couldn't really conceive of so first year mostly acclimatization then they started to introduce slightly more serious more dark realistic storylines We had abortion, rape, abuse, alcoholism, drug abuse, and then the really silly ones like, oh, you slept with my boyfriend. Well, he's not your boyfriend anymore. Oh, well, now I want him back. Or, no, he's not coming back to you. I mean, I lost count of the number of times Kelly and Brenda swapped Dylan. I mean, Dylan probably absolutely loved it, but... He was constantly, oh, she's my girlfriend this month. No, she's my girlfriend next month. And it was, that was, as a teenager, it was quite fascinating and quite intriguing to watch. But at the same, now thinking back on it, it was, oh dear, really. It was exhausting. They also, they also had some special episodes. And in one particular episode, they tackled the controversy of safe sex it's not really controversial subject especially now and even that well not even then Beverly Hills 90210 started only a few years after the AIDS crisis I'm not going to get into in depth with politics and personal views because 
this is a countdown of TV programs, not a, oh, what were the biggest serious social and economical issues in the 1990s. But it was something that was still publicized constantly it's it's almost I suppose I wouldn't say it's the corona of the night of the 80s and the 90s because no it is a very very serious subject and these characters took it incredible the storyline was basically we want you to provide uh, condoms to students who are going to be sexually active the tv program actually had to battle to get this episode on the air they didn't send out any previews for it they had to change elements of the script to make the people that were disagreeing with the distribution of contraceptives to students more acceptable and they had to make both sides of the argument appealing when in reality is the second side of the argument actually appealing as I said not going to get into in-depth in that, but everybody does have their views. However, this is a program that is this that was targeted at 16, 17, 18-year-olds. And in a time and a during a time when the combination treatments and therapies for people with HIV and AIDS were still being researched, the concept of safe sex is massively important. And if at that time they were saying well if you're considering it you're not going to not think about it because someone says oh I'm not going to give you a free condom so that was the argument but the production team and the company actually had a had to battle with the um, parent company in order to get this episode on the air and they handled quite a few topics like this they even had an entire storyline around animal rights where they were looking into well they weren't looking into there was this whole peter-like association that broke a lot of the rules and ended up with one of the characters getting arrested as i said they handled a lot of very very serious topics and one of the main reasons at the time it appealed to me was because i was the same age as these characters in 1990 i was 16 so do your maths and work out how old i am now and though i didn't have a group of glamorous backstabby mean girl friends i felt that a lot of these topics were incredibly relevant to me they were things that i was thinking about and things that i was learning about and things that I was experiencing, albeit in a slightly different way, because I didn't live in sunny Beverly Hills. I lived in wet, windy south coast of the UK. But that's why it appealed. And as I said, after season five, I seem to have things changed so much with the program that it just no longer felt like it was relevant to me and that's what I was looking for at the time. Right, negatives. As I said, I stopped watching after season five. The storylines had so reached a point where they were unrealistic. Yeah, I know it's a soap, but it was just, it had reached a very, very stupid point. There were certain things that you'd look at and you'd think, well, if that's the most serious thing you've got to worry about, then really, I can't understand it anymore. And my biggest issue from season five really was the fact that the characters were so interested in themselves and no one else that the heart of the program had just vanished they'd all moved on they were either at college or 
working and the core was no longer there obviously by this point Shannon Doherty had already left the show and it was only later that you discovered there were huge disagreements behind the scenes which makes you wonder why Spelling would hire her for Charmed later on but that's not I'm not talking about Charmed, I'm talking about Beverly Hills 90210. So all of these reasons are why it earns fifth place on my list. I was thinking about putting Dawson's Creek here because that's another teenage program. And then I realised that I actually barely made it through a single season. And I don't even remember how it ended. So fifth place, Beverly Hills 90210. When I started writing this list, I was so sure I knew exactly what was going to go where and then I began to think even more carefully about my justifications for placing these things in the places they were and I'm sure that this next one is going to get a few eggs thrown at me by some some people and again my view but in fourth place is Buffy the Vampire Slayer why is it not higher on the charts I I, I have this awful (laughs) I've got this so it's so tempting to whisper my opinions but I won't I gave this a lot of thought and realized that while there were so many things I loved about this program and I did that's the thing I am a fan of the program don't get me wrong when you start hearing the list of things I don't like about it please don't forget I am actually a fan I've watched all seven seasons I went to Buffy conventions I've got all of the books all of the the monster guides and everything I've got it all I've got them all I've got the limited edition DVD sets and everything and I still watch the episodes that I like however there were a few things that I just couldn't get past in first place on that list is the majority of season four for me there were a few things that had merit about it but with the loss of characters like Angel and Cordelia there was something missing And I know that they get their own show, more about that later. However, it was, there were certain things about it that just felt weak. The main villain of the piece for the entire season, Adam, Riley, and the initiative. It was just formulaic for me. As I said, my opinion. There were some really strong episodes. I mean, you can't, nobody could argue that Hush was a masterpiece it was it is one of the best episodes that they've done and there are I mean there are a few incredible episodes in this show and Hush is one of them it's just a shame that there were so many really weak episodes in season four and it it was disappointing we lost a few characters we gained a few characters but the ones we lost weren't really well replaced I mean Cordelia left Anya was already in it so she wasn't really replaced Angel left and we got Riley no offense to Mark Lucas fantastic actor thought he was amazing in Necessary Roughness did not like him as Riley but did not like Riley quite simple I think a lot of Angel fans had this issue anyway at the time but for me It is what ruined season four. Okay. So sorry. Season five. Now, season five had some really high points. They were low, but they were high points because they were incredibly well acted episodes. They were incredibly moving. 
But it was almost as though they had drawn out this formula that said, okay, we need to introduce a big bad. She needs to be a little bit psychotic or he needs to be a little bit psychotic. And we're losing our younger audience. So what can we do about it? So along comes Dawn. Then we get Glory and her alter ego, Ben. We have the return of Harmony with her unicorns. That episode was funny. And the first episode of season five, which is Buffy versus Dracula. Do I need to say any more? Of course, with episodes like Buffy versus Dracula. Vacula? Yeah, he was a bit vacuous. But with Buffy versus Dracula, we also get episodes like The Body. Seeing Joyce dead on the sofa had such impact. It was an episode that said so much and it made you realise how important Joyce had been to the show or was to the show and the characters in it that her loss was felt so deeply. However... Then you also have episodes, and this is so awful. As I said, I love the program, but there are so many episodes. I just sit there and go, I can't believe they put this in here. Into the Woods. Uh, Riley gets involved with some weird blood-sucking brothel. I have no idea where to go with this one. I really don't. But as I said, there were high points, there were low points, For me, the biggest high point, even though it was so depressing, was the gift. Not the gift. Oh my God, no, not the gift. (laughs) Sorry, the body. Right. Dawn is another matter entirely. She actually grew on me. It took me a while to get used to her. I think that there are certain things that just didn't add up for me when we get to season seven about her character or about her character makeup. But she wasn't as dread she wasn't such a dreadful addition to the show as people made her out to be when she initially when they initially introduced her okay this is probably going to be the most unpopular opinion on the planet when it comes to Buffy the Vampire Slayer I hated the musical once more with feeling I watched once I couldn't bring myself to watch it again they aired it as a an extended special the same week as they aired the original edited episode and I couldn't watch it. I didn't enjoy it and I like musicals. I'm currently watching Julian the Phantoms I think on Netflix. Totally random off topic thing here. I love musicals and I love music but I really didn't like Once More with Feeling. Um, So many other programs have since then followed the same template but it just I really didn't enjoy it and as I said I know that this is going to be such an unpopular opinion. People are going to be saying what do you mean you didn't like the musical episode? It was the best episode ever. I'm sorry I just didn't. I really didn't (laughs) but season six was another one that had some fantastic episodes and it was the first season finale that I enjoyed for several years. Tabula Rasa was an amazing episode with all their memories wiped, Willow's motivation for doing it in that she knew she'd screwed up and she wanted everybody to forget that she'd screwed up. It's 
But then we had Seeing Red, Two to Go, and it was so shocking seeing willow become who she did after tara's death it was as though that was the trigger that took her to the dark side that we'd seen in season three with the wish and doppelgangland it was we saw her potential for evil and all it took to trigger it was all it took that wasn't an all it took that was it was horrible tara's death was shocking and it was meant to be because it it was what made willow who she became and strengthened her desire for revenge wow and i had a dramatic pause there meant to make it sound so different but it strengthened her desire for revenge she was already angry because things were weren't right and then everything went very wrong this was the first season finale i'd enjoyed since season two another thing that was hugely distasteful for me in season six apart from the musical episode was buffy and spike's relationship it was so wrong so wrong on so many levels he was obsessed with her and he was abusive it was almost as though he turned the relationship he had with drusilla around and he was the one who was dependent upon drusilla and then he became obsessed with buffy and that turned dark it shouldn't it was unhealthy it should never have happened and i know there are plenty of spuffy fans out there and people are gonna go what if they aren't aware spike and buffy spuffy i know that there are loads of fans out there who were like oh finally no so many reasons why that shouldn't have happened and the biggest one was he was obsessed with her and that was not healthy. Anyway, season seven arrives and I barely remember it. I remember that Nathan Fillion was in it. I remember that the Hellmouth sort of closed in on itself and almost the entirety of Sunnydale vanished. But that's all I remember. Oh, and Xander lost an eye. But I don't remember very much. There is one thing that did frustrate me. And that was in season five when they introduced Dawn, they said she was made of the Slayer. She was part of the Slayer. And they'd made her this way to so that Buffy would protect her as the key. Now, if she was the key and her purpose had gone, A, why didn't she vanish at the end of season five? But B, if she was made of the Slayer, why, when all these other Slayers are being activated in season seven, is Dawn not a Slayer? It made no sense. She should have been the next Slayer. Instead, they introduce all these others like Kendall. Oh, uh, Kendall and Willow, no. But she's never going to be a Tara. And it just frustrated me. And as I said, there are so many things that make it sound like I hated this program. But I really didn't. Season seven felt like a bit of an afterthought to me. It was almost as though they were saying, oh, we need to finish this. We can't finish it with season six's finale, even though that would have been, if um, Willow had actually ended the world, that would have been a fantastic finale because it would have been such a turnaround and the big bad was a surprise. However, it was like they said, oh, we've got a seventh season. What do we do? I know, let's destroy the Hellmouth. It started with the Hellmouth. Let's end it with the Hellmouth. And it was rough. It felt a bit rushed. As I said, I barely remember any of it because of this. I just remember that I was frustrated. As I said, (laughs) all of this makes it sound like I hated Buffy. 
I didn't, though the list of things that frustrated and annoyed me is pretty long. I think it was more disappointment than anything else that led to the rather long list. But the things I liked are, it's a quite a short bit, but the things I liked are what made it the program it was. Buffy season one was a mid-season show, started in March 1997, so what, 23 years ago? There were only 12 episodes and out of the 12, only two of them were relatively weak fillers. One of them was the puppet show and the other one was me, Robot Eugene. But they still contained plot development. They hinted at the arrival of the Anointed One and the rise of the Master, who was the big bad for the season, though he looked like he had bad prosthetics and he was meant to be Nosferatu. He even had the fingers like Nosferatu, which is what made me think of it. It was also introduction of all the characters, including Dala, Angel Sire, and obviously Angel and Willow and not even not Spike, Willow, Xander, Cordelia, Harmony, Buffy and her mum. There were even hints at her father, but it was primarily an introduction. It was also the introduction for me to musicians I'd never heard of because I don't tend to listen to the radio very often. And these were Nina Gordon and Sarah McLachlan and quite a lot of others because the soundtrack for the soundtrack for Buffy is fantastic. There is no denying it. So now to the good stuff. For every episode I didn't enjoy, there were there were two or three that I loved. For every beer bad, which was a bizarre episode where Buffy turns into Neanderthal Buffy after drinking beer there's a hush and for every season three episode like band candy i love ethan rain he was a fantastic villain but that episode was just no there's a doppelgangland or the wish i really do wish they decided to go further with the alternate universe because vampire willow was an incredible character seeing the complete contrast between her and her and the normal Sunnydale universe Willow was incredible but now I'm sure you're probably saying that right about now but she was perfect in that role it showed us her potential for evil and wow that was a big pause sorry for me when it comes down to it the best season out of all of them was season two we have the best mid-season finale in the form of surprise and innocence and I've never forgotten my reaction to the first appearance of Angelus when he's in the alleyway after he's slept with Buffy on her 16th birthday or is it 17th 17th birthday so I'm so sorry and he is bending down it looks like he's kissing this prostitute in the alleyway and he's actually sucking her blood and when he looks up you can see the change in his demeanour. He's gone from the kind, considerate vegetarian to a twisted, somewhat delicious killer. And that sounds really bad, but Angel in his original form was a little bit, uh, that's really awful. Because he changed, as I, I I will mention later, he's complete. he's got a combination of Angel and Angelus when he comes back because he's 
aware that he can control it. I do think I've probably mentioned, in fact I know I have, I have a thing for the bad boys and I've no need to expand on that. Of course, season two had more than its fair share of villains. Some of them were fantastic, like Spike and Drew and Angelus. And then there was the judge. He was the reason that Spike and Drew had arrived in Sunnydale in the first place. He was basically a demon that had been cut into pieces and they were collecting the pieces together to put him, to make him into a Frankenstein-ish monster, I suppose. And he was going to destroy everything. Yet he was destroyed in moments in a shopping mall. Moments. His appearance was so negligible that it didn't matter. The same actor played him as had played one of the master's servants in season one. That's how important it was. However, the end of season two with the big two-parter finale of Becoming Parts 1 and 2 gave me goosebumps, and it still does. The scene at the end of Becoming 1 where Buffy is run, she's in her teal jacket and she is running through the corridors trying to reach Kendra. And then the next bit, the next thing you see is Kendra dead and Angel uh, Angelus has killed her. It is a massively powerful episode and for me one of the strongest... It is the strongest season finale there was in the entire run of the show. And it's why it is one of the things that redeems it in comparison with all the other, with the stuff that I said I didn't like. And that is why I put it in fourth. Bear with me, we are almost halfway through, I promise. Smack dab in the middle of my personal chart is the Buffy spin-off Angel. I gave third place a lot of thought. In fact, I wrote my list down and I think I moved things around maybe six times and with five things, <laughs> that's pretty good going. It took me a while to whittle the list down to start with and then when I started thinking about what I did and didn't like about the programs, that helped me to identify where I was going to put them on the list. So, as much as I enjoyed Angel, and I do occasionally dig out the DVDs, there were certain things about it that gave me pause. And they're not so much about specific episodes of the program. They are more to do with the way that certain characters were used. So let's jump right in with the first one, which is Cordelia. I loved her character in Buffy. She was so ridiculous. <sighs> Gina George when she started out however when we catch up with her in LA her family lost all their money her boyfriend in the form of Xander had cheated on her and broken her heart and she was really she was running away she wanted to make her name as an actress and ends up by coincidence in the same place as Angel actually in the middle of one of his cases his first case, well, the first one that you actually see in the, in, the se in the show. Angel is working with Doyle, a demon who has premonitions. And Cordelia almost slots in effortless, effortlessly to the team. When Doyle kisses Cordelia before his death, R.I.P. Quinn Doyle, that, I mean, that, particular scene is quite moving and it's actually the last scene that he ever filmed you'll know what I mean if you've seen it and if you haven't watch it she is gifted with his premonitions and she becomes even more valuable to the team 
well, the team of two at that point, because she is now Doyle. Well, she's Doyle's replacement. And I was really happy that she had this strength of position. Eventually, obviously, as you know, the team at Angel Investigations goes goes from Cordelia and Angel to Cordelia, Angel, Wesley, Cordelia, Angel, Wesley, Gunn, Cordelia, Angel, Wesley, Gunn, Fred. As they develop Cordelia's character, they start to change her. She ends up losing quite a lot of what she was or what I felt she had the potential to be. What they did to her character was nothing short of criminal in the writing game. So we'll skip season two, we'll go to season three. In season three, she is told that the the visions she's been gifted with are actually killing her and she is created anew as a so-called higher being. She's being possessed, and she starts to behave out of character. She has a fling with Angel's teenage son, more about him in a bit, and then she spends the last fifth of season four in a coma before she finally passes on. I appreciate that the writers had a bit of dilemma. Charisma Carpenter was at that point actually pregnant and they had to figure out a way to work around it but there are so many other programs that have managed to do it. Okay so it it has become a bit of a sort of a film and tv joke when a lead female becomes pregnant and they have to work things around it like big bags and sitting behind desks and things but they could have made her a desk jockey for a while or had her standing behind the bar in the office and everything else. But no, instead they decided to have her possessed by a demon, pregnant with said demon, having weird reactions to things, and then in a coma and then dead. So, first problem. Second one, Connor Angel. What the heck were they doing? Angel was fantastic and a sort of supernatural procedural with an overall overarching storyline they had some really good guest stars did you know here's a little fact jeremy renner actually appeared as a child of angel in that angel sired him made him a vampire in season one episode somnambulist there you go check that out if you haven't seen it he's wearing glasses and looks totally different all of these overarching issues actually tie back to wolfram and hart where Lindsay works played by Christian Kane. I did say a couple of episodes ago that all things lead back to Christian Kane and this one definitely does. Partway through season three, Darla returns. She is hugely pregnant and the child is Angel's. She gives birth and sacrifices herself, so stakes herself so the child can be born. Angel is literally left holding the baby, who is then later kidnapped by a very well-meaning, but pretty stupid in this case, Wesley who is, who believes he's saving Angel from killing his son. And Angel adores his son and there is a huge rift between the two friends when Connor is kidnapped. A few episodes later, Connor comes back. He's now a teenager, having grown up in an alternate dimension, raised by someone called Holtz, who has taught him to hate his father and wants him to kill his father. I... Look, I've got no problem with alternate dimensions. I really don't. And I have no problem with Angel having a son. When I get past the whole, how do dead creatures actually procreate? But then I suppose Twilight also did the same thing. 
a few years later but I never understood his purpose in the show at all I know that season three ends with Connor having trapped his father in an iron case of some kind and thrown him into the ocean and that's how it ends but I still don't understand didn't understand his purpose in this in in the season I promised you a Connor story and I'm going to deliver way back when uh, okay 2006 now I had to think for a moment then I only remember because it was the year that X-Men 3 The Last Stand came out probably the worst X-Men movie until they released The Dark Phoenix and I was helping out at this convention that was being held in the UK in around May that year some of the guests were from other shows I think Kevin Sorbo was there and a few others but it was primarily for people who were huge fans of Angel they had the majority of the cast unfortunately David Boreanaz I believe had already started filming Bones at that point but they had Juliet Landau, Julie Benz, Andy Hallett, Amy Acker, Alexis Denisoff came for literally an afternoon and Vincent Cartizer, as well as a few members of the cast from uh, from Buffy. Anyway, I'm looking after a room of autographers, namely Juliet Landau, Julie Benz, Andy Hallett and Vincent Cartizer, waiting for the people who were queuing up. It felt like about a mile queue for autographs. And Vincent Cartizer is sitting there with his handler and she's massaging his shoulders and he's making noises that, oh, uh, they could be easily misunderstood. So I'm sitting there and all of a sudden, in the way I have, unfortunately, and I've never lost it, I just blurted out with, people are going to really misunderstand that if they can hear it outside. A few people laughed. Most people laughed. And then he pipes up with, well, Rachel, that's because you're a bit of a pervert. So there's my story. I got called a pervert by Vincent Cartizer. Okay, so why is Angel actually higher up the rankings than Buffy? They were a more cohesive team. And really, that is it. The group are adults, though, obviously, at the start of the show and towards the end, there was a teen in the programme, otherwise it wouldn't qualify for this countdown. And though sometimes there was that element of you need to do this because it's dangerous and I told you they are all treated as equals in Buffy it was it always felt like there was an element of listen to me I'm the slayer I know everything I was created for this and she's sometimes dismissive of suggestions that her friends came up with even though they've been through a lot of this with her and Angel isn't all about him it's about the group. Without them, he would be nothing. And I think he knows that. Even though he does go on a kick of self-pity and woe is me and everybody leave me alone. And there's quite a few of them. He is still very much aware that without his support, he wouldn't, he would get anywhere. He starts on the journey alone, but he soon finds his support in originally Doyle, then Cordelia, and he grows his group around that. Whereas Buffy has always been taught that she is meant to be doing this alone, apart from 
her watcher. Oh, I didn't even mention Giles. Wow. I can't believe I forgot all about Giles. Anyway, I do think that the final episode, final scene in the episode was so strong. It had some sort of in a way, in my memory, it had an. It almost was an homage to the season, the series four ending for Blackadder Four. You know where it ends before you actually see any of the action. They are going over the hill, and in this case, they are heading into their final battle. Wow, it didn't actually take it much to beat Buffy, did it? I'm so sorry. Okay, so I can. I'm going to take a break so I can promote an incredible podcast that if you love spies, will be right up your alley. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Cam, the provocateur. And we are the Spy Hards Podcast. Together we go deep undercover into the world of spy movies to decode the best and worst of spy cinema. Will the film make the knock list? Well, Cam, what is the knock list? The Knocklist is the need-to-see official classics of the Spy Hearts podcast. We are curating the ultimate list of spy films, and so we're going to bounce all over the place from James Bond to Jason Bourne to who knows what and determine whether they belong in the pantheon of all-time great spy films. That's right. So join us every Tuesday on all your favorite podcast apps. Just search Spy Hearts. That's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S. But until then, listeners, good luck. Among the Shadows. So, if you want to give Agent Scott and Cam a listen, head over to Spy Hards, but not until after you finish listening to this. At number two is a program that ran for three seasons, was saved by Tabasco Sauce, and starred someone who had a very tiny part in Guardians of the Galaxy Part 1. Yes. I'm talking about Roswell, or Roswell High as it was known in the UK. I watched this programme religiously. For me, the programme was more about Michael and Maria. I know that Liz and Max were the core characters, but Michael, the angry one who had just constantly been shafted by everything in life, is so much more aware of how harsh the world is that he knows that after Max saves Liz using his powers when she's been shot, he has put their lives in danger. And Michael, more than anyone, is aware of how horrible the world can be. I mean, he's living, his adoptive or foster parents are not interested in him whatsoever. He's pretty much been raising himself from the word go, whereas Isabella and Max have been very well protected by their parents. It's a Okay, so that's a positive. And let's just... Okay, let's focus on the the negatives first. Max and Liz. Mostly Liz, if I'm being fair. We get it. You were shot. You nearly died. Max saved you. Max is an alien. Blah, blah, blah. And that was honestly my reaction to her character. Pretty much the entire run of the show. But then he cheats on her. He gets someone else pregnant and gets Liz into some very dangerous situations all the way through though it's not really that oh my god I'm gonna sound like a broken record here for me it was season three that was the straw which broke the camel's back I watched I cried when it ended but if pushed I probably wouldn't be able to remember a single specific episode from the from the entire season And that is really sad as this was the year that 
they brought the original author, Melinda Metz, on board. I met her, she's really lovely. So what went wrong? I've asked myself this so many times, and I really have. And I can't help but think that the cast were just going through the motions at this point. The show had been um, on the bubble for at the end of season one, at the end of season two, and then they brought it back, obviously, for season three. And it was as though they were just like, oh, well, I, I suppose I need to finish this. I saw a couple of scenes being filmed. I went to the US for a for a Roswell convention organised by the website Crashdown. And I went with a few friends to watch them filming where they do the Crashdown, the actual cafe and everything else. And I saw them filming. Met Colin Hanks. He was so sweet. Very, very tall. And also saw Catherine Heigl filming with Adam Rodriguez. Obviously, at this point, nothing was known about what was going to happen at season in season three because it hadn't started. We were there watching them filming stuff that hadn't, obviously, hadn't been on air yet. But we were watching something that was being filmed from a season that hadn't even started yet. And we saw Isabel with Adam. I think it must have been a flashback episode because obviously Alex was no longer in it. But I just found the season frustrating. I think part of it was everything got tied up in a neat little bow. So there was no comeback. It was as though they already, I mean, they'd already clearly been told that this was the last thing. This was their last go. This was the last season. Season, or maybe the actors had decided that they didn't want to be in it anymore. However, when it got tied up in a nice little neat bow and they were all only 18, 19 years old and they were getting married and everything else, it felt a little bit odd to me. They were very young still. <laughs> that being said, I actually struggled to come up with the above reasons. <laughs> they are pretty feeble when you think about it. My favourite episode is... So we're going back to the positives because it's been a struggle. My favourite episode is in season one. It is the first true interactions between Maria and Michael. And it's the episode 285 South. It, I think it's episode five. It was here that Maria really came into her own. Until this point, she's been the sort of wacky sidekick, Liz's best friend, co-worker at the crashdown, Liz's parents' own, and everything else. So she's finally on her own in a car with Michael. She's aware that he's an alien, and the whole concept terrifies her. I think at one point, Isabel actually uses her fear of the alien's to find out what she plans on telling people. And that whole dream sequence is quite funny. Michael, of course, has borrowed Maria's car. I think she she must be one of the only ones who has a car. And bearing in mind she's from a single parent household, her mother's got limited income. She obviously works really hard to get what she's got because she has her own car, a little Jetta, that she is very, very proud of. And Michael decides he's going to borrow it. But Maria's not having that. He's not going anywhere without her if he's going somewhere in her car. So they end up on a pretty disastrous road trip along 285 South because Michael has a theory. He's ignored Max's instructions to not go anywhere and not do anything until he's told otherwise. And he's stubborn anyway. 
that's a given and Michael does not respect authority and he's not going to take instruction from Max just because Max is apparently the leader of their group what happens is both comedic and sad and tragic and just a really good relationship builder it it actually enhances who it gives us a better idea of who both of these characters who have been not sidelined because they aren't they don't tend to sideline any of the characters in the show but they have been sort of oh they're the best friends we get to know more about them and that for me is why I enjoyed the episode the secondary characters had their own shot at attention it was also a really good, well-written and exciting episode. Gave us more insight into their past, especially when Michael is proved right. I could seriously go on forever about season one. It's my favourite. But I am going to save my tales of meeting Bill Sadler and Brendan Fair for another time. Yeah, I've been to a few conventions. So, oh, I've made it. I was starting to think I was going to be here forever and my backside is starting to ache because this chair is not comfortable. And here is me just building up the anticipation a tiny bit more by doing yet another countdown. So in fifth place was the 1990 Beverly Hills 90210, you know, the one with the original cast that started everything that ended up with so many spin-offs and so many remakes. It's uncountable in fourth place was probably my least popular choice for everybody else not for me Buffy the Vampire Slayer in third place right smack dab in the middle was Buffy spin-off Angel in second place was Roswell High or Roswell depending on where you come from and in first place Drum roll, please. Building up that anticipation even further is one of my favourite series ever. Started in 2004, finished in 2007, had a reboot in 2019 and a film in 2014, Veronica Mars. Veronica Mars is the story of a girl. Now I'm, for some reason in my head, I've got the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air theme. She goes from the heights of popularity to the depths of obscurity following the murder of her best friend, the wrongful accusation by her father of her friend's father and her own rape. Veronica's father was the sheriff of Neptune, the fictional town where the show is based, and he went all guns blazing into the investigation into Lily's murder and ended up accusing the wrong people so he is then um he loses the election to become to maintain and retain his position as sheriff and starts a private investigation business forget major thing his wife developed a drinking problem seem to be a lot of those primarily focused on women because logan's mother also has a drinking problem but she uh, veronica's mother develops a drinking problem and leaves the family leaving just veronica with her leaving veronica with her father but then they have such an incredible relationship the dynamic between them is brilliant to watch and Enrico Cantilano is fantastic as her father keith anyway let's move on the first season is all about finding out who murdered Lily played by Amanda Seyfried in primarily in flashbacks 
there are so many suspects you'd be forgiven for thinking we're in Cabot Cove and Veronica is a young Jessica Fletcher. If you don't understand that reference, please look up Murder, She Wrote. And everyone has the potential of being guilty. And I'm, I mean pretty much everybody. So along the way, though she has been exiled from her original group of friends, the known as the O-Niners because of their zip code, including Lily's brother Duncan, who Veronica was originally dating, she makes new friends. Mac, a computer nerd played by Tina Majorino. Wallace, who is a new boy in school, who is a very talented basketball player, played by Percy Daggs III. And she also has a surprising ally after she helps him with a case in the form of Weevil, who is the leader of a biker gang called the PCHs, and he's played by Frances Capra. Obviously, her other friends have completely ostracised her, but now she is, I don't need them. That is very much her, her, her mentality is, I don't need you. I, I'm going to wipe my hands of you if you're going to ignore me anyway. In many ways, it could be said that Veronica is like Buffy. And it really could. She's blonde, she's strong, she's stubborn, she's determined. But that is where, for me, the similarities end. Uh, Her lot, though, okay, so Buffy hasn't exactly had it easy. Her parents divorced, she moved to a new town. She's the slayer, she's got untold responsibilities. She is the only one, she's pretty much destined to be alone her love is a her love the love of her life is a vampire who if she sleeps with him he loses his soul okay we get it that's all supernatural with veronica and hang on that sounds really bad it's all supernatural so it doesn't matter it does matter it's horrible and she has to live through a lot however she has a very very strong support group and she doesn't get ostracized in her new school okay she may have been ostracized in her old one because they do make mention of what happened in the original 1992 film as though it happened to her and she got expelled from her school and everything however when she moves to a new school she has a new start veronica is stuck in the same town everybody is aware that her father was fired from his pretty much fired from his job that he accused the wrong person of murder everyone knows her shame and she still stands up with her head held high and she though there is a massive amount of resentment which is perfectly understandable given the situation she is still not going to not help people because that's her character Okay, so her friends have abandoned her, her best friend was murdered, she was raped, her mother ran off, she's been bullied, her father lost his job, but she pushes through it. It's not easy, nothing ever is, but she continues on her mission to find out who killed her best friend. And also, along the way, helps a lot of other people and herself. I don't imagine, she's not exactly doing it for free, I will say, she isn't doing it for free. She needs money. They live in an area that I'm assuming here, given everything else, is not the cheapest to live in. And she's hardly going to provide them with a service for nothing. So understandably, she charges them a fee, though it's in most cases only what they can afford. So she's moved on. Her focus is on seeking justice for Lily and her own justice will come as it, when it, when it comes. 
She also seems to have a bit of a thing for bad boys. Halfway through the first season, things explode spectacularly between Veronica and Logan, who also unfortunately happens to be a bit of an asshole and Lily's ex-boyfriend. If you've seen season one episode Weapons of Class Destruction, you'll get the whole explode pun. And if you haven't seen it yet, why not? Veronica also seems to sort of be confused. I mean, understandably, there's there should there will be guilt. She's snogging her best her deceased best friend's boyfriend. And they start an on-again, off-again, on-again relationship. What is with teen shows and this on-again, off-again, on-again? I must have missed something when I was a teenager because I swear that things weren't like this when I was a teenager. I don't know. Maybe I'm just too old. And this relationship actually carries through to the movie. I really need to get a drink or three in me and watch season four. I really do. Maybe that will be my test for next week. Depends on how busy the work week is. Okay, so as with a lot of shows, and oh my, this really is a, and this season was awful. Season three, it was a little weaker than the first two. Veronica is now in college. She's 18 years old. Her and all of her friends, this is, this is what confused me. All of her friends, including all the ones who have money and all the ones who did fantastically well academically, they are all at the same college Hurst College relatively local she has a she has some new friends we get introduced to Parker Lee and Stosh his marquee who everyone calls Piz who is a student and a DJ the regulars are all still in the show as I've said already they all made it into the same college which and it's that really was the bit that was like huh why have they all gone there I know it's fiction, but it just struck me as a bit weird that someone like Mac, for example, who is a computer whiz, didn't decide to go to Caltech or MIT. Okay, so there's my little opinion on that one. The show became a little bit more adult as obviously the characters were getting older and one of the key, there were several key mysteries through it as well, as there had to be. It's a mystery. It's a, a show about a woman who is a private investigator it has to have something and one of them is the identity of a serial rapist who targets students at Hearst College when Parker who is actually Max's roommate is the latest victim the hunt begins and the revelation of who the rapist is is a bit of a surprise I'm not going to give it away partially because I don't remember I just know it was a bit of a surprise and I was taken aback at the time this is the one this is the season, season three, where Veronica and Logan completely fall apart. So much has happened that Veronica is struggling to trust him and we witness the slow deterioration of their relationship, which was, if anybody is a marshmallow, it's devastating to see it. And it was so real. Logan, of course, is his usual, <laughs> I don't care about itself. However, when you see later incarnations of his character, you see that he's actually changed a lot. So obviously something happened between all of the things that occurred in their freshman year of university or college, depending on what country you're living in, and seven years later. Though it would have only been, what, three or four years after he, no, four or five years after he graduated from college I don't know anyway when the film came out in 2014 seven years later 
I was surprised that Piz and Veronica were together, even though they apparently had been for a significant portion of season three. As I said, a lot of things got wiped from my mind. I guess his character made such a small impact on me during season three. And this is nothing against him or the actor that plays him at all. But there were so many strong characters, strong personalities in the program already that he got a little, he was sort of overwhelmed by them. Let's go back. I started talking about the film. It wasn't filmed until seven years later, as I've already said. And it was like pulling on a nice, comfortable dressing gown. When I found out it was going to be made, I was overjoyed because it was like, ah, yay. As though I'd actually complete, I'd wiped season three from my head. Maybe I had done, I don't know. Veronica is waiting to hear about a job working for a law firm, which is different. The original plan was if if it had been renewed, she was going to actually be in the FBI. I think there is somewhere on the internet, there is a brief preview of what was planned for season four by Rob Thomas. So if you're interested, it might be worth having a search for that. But it shows Veronica sort of trying, it does a time jump and it shows Veronica going to an interview to work for the FBI. Because why wouldn't she? I mean, she's got plenty of experience in spying and everything else. Wow. Don't I just know so much about what it's what is required to be a member of the FBI? So let's move on to the film that was made back in 2007, thanks to funding from Crowdfunder. Logan calls her for help, bearing in mind they probably haven't really spoken in the seven years since they broke up. And he's very, very different. And he's been accused of murdering his ex-girlfriend and needs Veronica's help to prove that he is innocent. He's now in the Navy and we see quite a few clips of him in the film in his Navy whites. He looks pretty good in his Navy whites. And so Veronica goes back to help him. So there's obviously no massive bad blood between them. There's a bit of tension, clearly. I mean, I don't see why there wouldn't be. But she still goes to help him because that's in her nature. But what seems like a really straightforward case suddenly takes a really dark turn when people start dying. Weevil is shot when he stops to help someone on the side of the road. And he's become a very, very staid and sensible family man. He's got children, he's married. And this being shot thing actually sends him back on the path to the PCHs, which you find out at the end of the film. Her dad is almost killed when a truck is intentionally driven into him when he's talking to a contact. The contact is killed straight away and Keith ends up in intensive care for a considerable amount of time. And then when everything is discovered to be connected to a nine-year-old cold case, so something that happened in season one of Veronica Mars, I think, maybe season two, I'm going to have to go back and check, her friends I think Shelley drown on a trip. Gia, another of Veronica's ex-schoolmates from Neptune High, is actually shot by her co-conspirator when Veronica goes to confront her about the murders. And obviously this kind of wraps things up. Logan's found innocent, Veronica and Piz split up, Veronica stays with Logan and then Logan goes back to the Navy because he can't not when he's, his name's been cleared and everything else and it's his career 
his life choice, but Veronica is going to wait for him anyway. During the initial three-season run, the show was both incredibly popular with fans and also popular with people you wouldn't expect to guest star. And in that list, and the list is really long, I couldn't believe it when I started to compile it, there are actors like Kristen Ritter, before she became famous for Jessica James, Steve Gutenberg, who was famous obviously in the 80s for the Police Academy films, Jessica Chastain, Aaron Paul, Max Greenfield before he was in New Girl, Melissa Leo, Kevin Smith, Tessa Thompson, Joss Whedon, and the eternally youthful Paul Rudd, just to name a few. If you watch the show and you sit there thinking, no, that can't be, it probably was. Why do I like it? Veronica Mars is not a show you just dip into. It has each episode, though, like Buffy and Angel, has its own villain of the week or story, uh, mystery of the week or whatever else. It also has a purpose. There are underlying messages that solve certain elements of the case, whichever the ca- whatever the case may be. And I loved that element of it it was like watching a full film that lasted for 22 episodes okay so when I first started watching it it was on once a week and then it got really hard to find because the station that had been airing it in the UK stopped so it got slightly harder and I ended up getting a friend to send it to me on DVDs from the states at one point it was that hard to get hold of I know that it originally aired on BBC Two, then moved to Living. Things over here are never straightforward. And I think when you look at Buffy and Angel's history in the UK, and Roswell's for that matter, every single TV programme has started on one channel and moved to another at some point. Or if you're, and in fact, there's a few programmes now. I think This Is Us aired on Channel 4 or E4, and now it's not aired anywhere in the UK apart from on Amazon. That's a massive Emmy Award winning hit, so it makes no sense whatsoever. But let's move on from that. Anyway, that for me is my number one, Veronica Mars. It also helps that it had one of the catchiest theme tunes, the Dandy Warhols. There you go, my five to one. And it only took about an hour and a half to get through. I hope you're still breathing. In fact, it did take an hour and a half to get through. I really hope you found that interesting. If you've got other programs you think that fit the criteria, let me know if you you want you want to know why I didn't include them in my chart. There were a few that I did think about and then I actually had to eliminate them because they didn't really qualify, such as Charmed was in there at one point but not one of the characters was a teenager at any point during the season run and another one was Dark Angel. And the lead characters in that were also too old, surprisingly. And here is where I would normally have the section also known as A Week in the Life of Ray. However, this week has been incredibly busy with lots of personal things happening, including brand new prescription of medication, my nephew being knocked off his bike by a car, a hit and run, no less, and obviously really really busy week at work as well as desperate need for sleep. I've looked at how long this episode has gone on for and I think that maybe I should just leave all that stuff for next week so you'll be getting the wonder of a week in the life of Ray times two 
otherwise known as the Fortnite from I have no idea where. So that being said, that's it for this week. I hope that you've enjoyed listening to my random thoughts, my odd dreams and of course my five to one countdown of my favourite TV shows starring a teenage lead. I'm pretty active over on social media so if you want to follow me to find out what I've been up to between recordings or want to just come over and say hi, I promise I don't bite, you can find me at need underscore three underscore mugs on Twitter and not before coffee podcast on Facebook. I post on both regularly however I am more active over on Twitter and I'm posting about books I've read episode planning and obviously a lot of other podcast related things well if you can't tell I've been talking for quite a while and my throat is rather dry so I need another cup of coffee and that means I'm going to go and put the kettle on until next time this is me saying farewell farewell